My name's Nick, Nick Bratcher. I am the RUF campus minister here. Um, and uh, welcome to the very first large group of RUF this year. Um, if you're here, I like thank you for coming. Um, and also, like I would love to get uh, coffee or grab a meal with you at some point and hear your story and learn a little bit about you and walk with you through college. Um, that's like my heart and my desire. Um, so if I have not said hi to you yet and if I don't have your number and we have not made like a coffee date or something, like let's do it. Um, now's the time. So uh, yeah, don't leave without saying hi to me. Uh, this semester at RUF Large Group, we're looking at the parables. Um, a parable is just a story. Um, it's a very simple story that didn't actually happen, uh, but it illustrates something true. Uh, as our tagline for the series goes, uh, it's a simple story with spiritual significance. Um, tonight's story is actually one you might be like sort of familiar with, uh, or at least its premise. It's printed on the back of your bulletin, by the way. I should have said that to begin with. Um, you have Luke um, there, um, so you don't have to just like ethereally follow along. Um, now, we, you've probably seen this, like, trope in shows before, but there's, like, a character, you know, like, when a character dies, and they go up to heaven, and there's, like, the pearly gates, and, like, St. Peter's there, and he's kind of, like, a bouncer-type figure, and there's, like, a judge, right? Um, and God's, like, you know, judging people, and then there's, like, a trap door that you fall through, and you go to hell or whatever. That's, that's like, how the cartoon ends, right? That's in Looney Tunes. But uh, there's also, like, a version of this. I don't know if you guys have seen The Good Place. Um, but like, yeah, okay. <laughs> There's a nod of a sense like, oh yeah, I'm into the good place. Uh, Maya Rudolph's character is like this version of this, right? She's like a judge and she can decide where you go and where you stay and stuff. Well, this is, uh, this is actually as close as we get to that in the Bible. That scene doesn't like actually occur anywhere in scripture. Um, but this does. Uh, tonight, in tonight's text, Jesus is going to tell us a story about two men um, who enter God's presence as their judge, Right? Uh, once there, they both are faced with the same question, on what basis uh, should God have a relationship with them, right? Uh, in tonight's text, uh, you know, to put it in, in judicial terms, um, one man, uh, oh wait, sorry, these two men, sorry, I'm back to these two men. These two men walk into the temple, right? And they're going to enter into God's presence. They're both there to pray, to talk to him and worship him, to have a relationship with him. But one of these men, uh, earns God's pleasure and the other earns his displeasure. Or to put it in judicial terms the way the Bible talks about it, one of these men uh, goes home justified and one of these men goes home condemned. Um, justification being like, you know, he's declared innocent. He's declared not guilty. Um, and he is worthy of God's love. And ultimately, this simple story, this one that we're looking at tonight, its spiritual significance will put to us the question. This is the thing that I want you to, like, this is our big question tonight. This is what I want you to hang your hat on. Um, what do you point to for your justification? What do you point to to justify yourself? Um, that's our big question. What do you point to to justify yourself? What's the, what's the basis of your sense of self-worth? Um, it's the question ha that Jesus has on his mind as he, like, approaches uh, this story, as he tells the story. We know this because Luke actually starts the, the parable by telling us uh, the kind of people that were around, right? It says that they trust in themselves. And this actually prompts Jesus to tell this story to these people to help them find the truth. Now, I know probably some of this in here um, may not uh, really understand this, like may not believe that there is a God, or if we do, we're like, I don't know if he would be like this judge character. Um, 
But can I just say, like, don't get tripped up over just the scenario itself. Um, justification, this issue that's, that Jesus is bringing up, is actually a thing that's kind of endemic to all human beings, right? Um, we need something to validate us. We need something to give us some amount of worth to tell us that we're good enough. Um, that's not just unique to this story. I mean, people who are very smart at marketing know that this is a thing, and it's why, like, Instagram exists, Right? Um, you don't have to be a Christian to like understand the, the basic concept of Instagram. If you, if you did Instagram in real life, right, let's say you take like a picture of yourself and then I walked around the union just like showing it to people like, Hey, do you like me? Do you think I'm cool? Do you think like, just, can you tap this photo and say that I'm cool? Can you, I mean, like it's, I look, I own three Instagrams. Okay. Like I have three different accounts. Um, I'm like, I know I'm oversimplifying it. Okay. But at the same time, like that's what it's, I mean, that's a little, that's, if you really boil it down, that's a little bit about what Instagram is doing, right? It's like, do you validate me? Am I good enough? Um, am, I, am I justified in your eyes? Um, so even if, like, this whole, like, scenario, you're like, I don't believe in this, uh, we do, like, all experience this dilemma, this thing. Like, how am I going to justify my existence? Um, where, do we, where do we point to? What are we going to point at to, to say I'm justified, I'm, I'm good enough? Well, Jesus is going to tell us. Let's read the passage. This is Luke 18, 9 through 14. It says, He also told this parable, he being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house to be justified, or went down to his house justified, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, I pray that you'd use these words tonight to speak to us and tell us what you desire for us and how we can come to know you and enjoy the life you offered us in your son. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's start uh, at the beginning. So we see, as we seek to answer our question, right, this is our big question. What do you point to for your justification? What are you going to point out? Well, look with me at verse 9. Uh, right from the jump, we're told that Jesus tells this story because there were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And what does that mean? Um, well, we find out kind of shortly later in the story in verse 12 what this trust in oneself looks like. As the Pharisee enters the temple, he tells God his resume, all his good life works. Now, we'll get to treating others with contempt in a moment. Uh, but on its face, this Pharisee's life's work, it doesn't seem so bad, does it? Um, some of us, you know, might have in mind, like, the idea of, like, a Pharisee being, like, a very big hypocrite. And that is how the Bible will, like, paint them at other uh, occasions. But in this parable, like, the Pharisee is, like, a good person. Um, and it also, like, in Jesus' day, when he's telling this story, the people who would have heard this story would have thought of Pharisees as being really great people. Um, Josephus, who was a, a contemporary of Jesus, who was a, uh, a Jewish historian, he describes the Pharisees like this. They are a, a popular and powerful faction, ascetic in lifestyle, concerned to present themselves as rigorous 
for the Old Testament law. And for the record, he meant that as a compliment, <laughs> right? Like he thought these were good, highly moral, like just solid dudes, you know? Like, and this particular Pharisee was exceptionally good, right? Um, Jesus tips us off to, the, to like the, achieve, in the achievements that this Pharisee lists. He like tells us kind of like subtly how good this Pharisee really is. One, he fasts twice a week. Uh, the only requirement for God's people was that they fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement, and that was in Leviticus 23. And then the other tip-off is that this guy gives tithes of all he gets, right? Uh, Just as God commands in Deuteronomy 14, he gives 10% of everything that his crops yield um, to the Levites, who literally live off of just the generosity of other people. Um, This is a good person (laughs) that we have in front of us. You would all, like, if he was here, you would all want to be friends with this guy. He, he's generous, he is loving, you know, like all these kinds of things. He, he, to you, it would seem like he was just the epitome of like a morally upright person. That's what Jesus is trying to tell to us. And so in presenting us with this person, with this character, it gives us the first option in answering our question, what do you point to for your justification? You can point to yourself. We point to ourselves. We, we point to our resumes and our good works. But here's the problem. That's our first answer for tonight, right? So we're going we're, to, there are going to be three. I'll just give you the heads up. There are going to be three. But here's the problem with that answer that we can point to ourselves. This is like dumping a water cooler on yourself when you soiled your pants, okay? Um, and some of you guys are like, what? How would you do that? Well, let me tell you. Uh, whenever I was in seventh grade, it was my, uh, I was just starting marching band. Um, yeah, it's a marching band story. That's for you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was in, I was in marching band um, and... Uh, I was like, you know, the youngest kid there, and we had just taken a water break. And about uh, five minutes after we took our water break and we're like setting up, we're practicing to do the, the Star Spangled Banner that we're going to play the next night. And suddenly it like hits me like a ton of bricks, like, I got to pee. I got to pee big time. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, but you have to, there's, there's two problems with me needing to go to the bathroom. One is that my section leader, the guy I'm going to have to ask to go to the bathroom, his name's Rodrigo. He was a stickler for the rules. And, like, also super intimidating because he's, like, a senior and I'm, like, 12. So I'm, like, uh, can I go to the bathroom? And he's, like, no. You know, like, it's, it's I, I'm, I'm fearful of this man, right? Um, he stands between me and the bathroom. The other thing that is preventing me from going to the bathroom uh, that's complicating this whole matter is that uh, we were, like, a traditional, like, military style of marching band, which means that we were all in straight rows and people were checking us off and stuff, and we had to stand stock still. So I'm just standing there with my trumpet. And, like, I don't know if you've ever had to go to the bathroom really bad, but, like, standing still is literally, like, the last thing. Like, if you can kind of, like, move, you can kind of hold it a little bit better. But I'm just standing there just dead still, right? And, uh, you know, I'm holding it and holding it, and the pressure's building. And uh, finally, the the, uh, dam breaks, my friends. Uh, And I'm standing there... The good news is we're all playing, we're all like already playing the national anthem. We get like maybe three notes in, dun, 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 and I just like, it's, go, it's going. It's happening. There's no control anymore. Um, there's no stopping halfway through. And so I, um, my pants are completely soaked, but everyone's still playing. They don't, they don't know that this has happened to me just yet, right? So I run, like I get this idea in my head. I'll run over, I, I run over to the coolers, the water coolers that were there, and I tip it, and I just tip it all over myself. Like, just, oh, no, and I act like it's this big thing, right? And uh, my, like, band director, like, stops everything. Like, my sexual leader comes in, are you okay? 
And I said, uh, I said, oh, I, I lied, by the way. Don't do this. Um, I lie. I ran over. And I said, uh, I said oh, no. Like, I, I got so dizzy while we were standing there. And I think I was, like, the heat or something. It was, like, late September. Um, like, <laughs> the heat was getting to me. And, like, honestly, I just, uh, I got really dizzy. And when I went to get some water, like, I just pulled the whole thing over on me. And they were like, wow, you just sit down for a little bit. And to this day, uh, I don't think anybody actually knows that I ever peed my pants that day. Um, but does that, listen, here's the crazy thing. Yeah, they don't. They have no, well, they probably do now. But, um, like, the crazy thing is that uh, that did, like, did me pouring water over myself actually, like, cancel out the fact that I had wet my pants? No. All it did was hide it from everybody else. And this is kind of like, uh, this is kind of what we do when we look at our resumes, right? We hide it from other people. We're really good at, like, showing off to other people, telling people all the stuff that we've done well. But really, a lot of that usually is a mask that we're, that we're portraying t- to the world um, that, like, we have it together when we really don't. Um, maybe for you, that's, like, you know, a bad breakup uh, in high school or something or maybe in college left you wondering, like, Am I lovely? Am I, like, am I worthwhile? Um, am I worth loving? And, uh, and so you decide, like, okay, well, I'm going to date or I'm going to sleep with, like, the hottest people I can find, and that's how I'm going to know that I am worth loving. Or maybe for you, you, like, work out really hard and you get revenge body, and you're like, the whole concept of revenge body is literally just justifying yourself, right? It's like, this person didn't love me, but if I work out hard enough and everybody knows that I'm actually like in the right here, then they're going to look like an idiot, not me. I'm, I'm justified. Um, or, you know, like this happens in so many different ways. Maybe, you've, maybe you're here tonight and you come from a broken home and your parents have told you that you're not going to amount to anything. And, uh, and the hard way that this works itself out there is maybe you spend all of your time studying or dreaming about this perfect internship you want to get or scheming about how you're going to get the right job after you get done, and you're going to make something of yourself, no matter what it takes. Um, and, and you sacrifice friendships or, or people or whatever you have to do to get that internship, to get that success. And the Bible calls this sin for a reason, um, these, these ways of justifying ourselves, because whether it's using, using other people sexually, or it's our own vanity, or idolizing your intelligence, or whatever you have to do, lying, these coping mechanisms make us less human. Uh, they blind us from the reality that we don't have it together, and they put this mirage up to the world that we do, and it isolates us, and it makes us exhausted. Um, our resumes aren't enough. Uh, they're not good enough. Uh, they're water jugs that we spill on ourselves to prevent people from knowing the truth about us that we'd be ashamed if they knew. Um, we're not perfect, and, and God doesn't buy it. Um, so... Uh, let's keep moving through the passage. Uh, for now, let's consider another tactic that the Pharisee is going to employ to justify himself before God as we answer the question, what do you point to for your justification? Well, let's look at verse 11. Uh, take note of something. Uh, look how many times the word I pops up in this speech from the Pharisee. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Five times. Five times the Pharisee refers to himself in just two sentences. Some prayer, right? He's talking more for himself than anybody else. 
the reason this is so is because pride always accompanies someone who thinks their justification is like in their performance, is in the, their like the, what they're doing is in their resume. Why? Because um, why does this happen? Why does pride like swell up in, in people like this? Well, in ourselves, like when we do this, because we all are guilty of it in some way or another. Um, it's because uh, when our resumes don't live up to the expectations we have for them, uh, we immediately start looking at other people. If we can't point to ourselves, we'll point at others. Um, like, you know, because what he is isn't enough, right? Because what the Pharisee is isn't enough, he's going to look at what he isn't, right? I'm not like this tax collector over here. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not any of these other vices. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, so he boils it down. Well, at least I don't sin like this tax collector, right? This is our second option for what we can point to for our justification. Uh, when pointing to ourselves doesn't work, we can try pointing at others. Um, and you know what? Uh, this approach is probably the most insidious of all the approaches we can take to our justification because uh, it's honest. It's kind of like true. Uh, the Pharisee is like, he's right in his assessment. I mean, tax collectors were notoriously bad people. Uh, and this is throughout the Roman Empire. They made a living by charging like inflated taxes. And then uh, the difference between what they collected and what Rome expected them to collect, they just pocketed. So essentially, as much as they could gouge people, that's how much they could have. And they could gouge a lot because they had the Roman army standing behind them to enforce like whatever number they picked. And so a lot of these tax collectors became very, very wealthy off the backs of their friends and family because they would actually recruit people from within small communities to become tax collectors so that they would know all the secrets, right? Like you'd grow up with your friends and then they'd turn you over to become a tax collector and you'd say, oh, I actually know about, you know, John hides his stocks in his, in his other barn and that's where like he keeps like uh, stuff that we don't actually normally tax. You start to learn all the ways that people cheat the system and then you turn on them. I mean, these people become like the, probably the most hated people in their communities because they're greedy. Um, so when the Pharisee claims like, thank God I'm not like this tax collector, I'm so much better than him. I mean, he's, he's right. This guy is awful. He's really, really terrible. Um, and he is a bitter, bigger sinner than the tax collector. Uh, this reminds me of a story of when I was a junior in high school. Um, I was a coach of an upper basketball team. Um, I don't know if you guys know what upper basketball is, but it's like, rec league church basketball for like five and six year olds. There's older leagues, but I was a coach for a five, six year old team. And, uh, these kids, um, like they don't, like they don't dribble at that age, right? They like bounce the ball like this, you know, like this is how it's like antithetical to how basketball works, but this is how they do it. Right. And, uh, they, you can't even steal at this age, right? You have to like you have to like just guard and then they just like literally walk up. They don't dribble at all at that point. And they just shoot. Well, uh, it's like herding cats, like coaching this kind of a league, right? And, uh, but they're, and so you don't like do anything. You just kind of like go out there and have fun. But there was one coach in our league that took it very seriously. And he would run plays. He would like, you know, he'd tell people, um, you know, here's the defensive scheme we're going to run. Like he had like boxing ones and stuff. I'm like, these kids are five, man. You know, he's like got them running like pick and rolls and things. I'm like, this is nuts. Um, I'm still upset about it. It's fine. Uh, but this, this meant a lot of times we lost, and we lost handily. But he had to, like, go out on the court and, like, move his players around because they're, they're five, like, six. They don't know what they're doing. So he's like, okay, you stand here, and then when he hits the ball, you're going to run over there. And he, like, put all his players in these positions, and I would watch him do that, right? 
the problem with that is in upper basketball, you are not allowed on the court. Uh, like it's one of their number one rules. Only the referee, only the players, people playing are allowed on the court. And this guy would consistently just walk out on the court. Well, one day I got really fed up with losing to this guy, and we were playing him one Saturday, and so I also went out in the court. I was like, okay, this kid's going to run over here, and then when you're going to do that, you're going to run around the screen. I was like trying to like, coach my, coach my like, you know, cats. And, uh, and this guy, like, the crazy part is um, the, the referee at the time comes over. He's like, sir, you're going to need to go back to your bench. And I'm like, excuse me? Like the other guy's standing like right, like even further on the court than I am. And I'm like, I, I and he was like, be that as it may, like, you need to go back to your bench. They were friends. Um, and so I, I go back to my bench, and, I, you know, the whole rest of the game, like, I'm just chirping, you know, and the refs here are like, hey, man, oh, my toe's on the line. Is that, a, is that okay? You know, like, I was a punk junior in, in high school, right? And, uh, and he's slowly just getting fed up with me. And then one time I see the, the, the coach is way out on the other end of the court, and I take a few steps on the court to, like, help my player. And the, the referee had had enough of me and, like, honestly – Reckley, you know, refereeing had gone to his head a little bit, and he just blows the whistle at me, and he just, you know, tees me up and tosses me out of the building. He's like, you're gone. I was like, I'm gone. I'm, look at this guy. He's way out on the other end of the court. Look at this. Are you kidding me? And he looks at me, and the power is rushing to his head, and he goes, you know what? You're right. You, you're gone too. He tosses both of us. Just we're both gone. We both have to exit the building, um, and we do... And I remember being so angry at this referee for, for tossing me out of this game. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. The other guy was so much farther on the court than me. But doesn't it make sense? Uh, there's one rule. Don't be on the court. And I broke it, right? And why, would it, why would it matter whether or not this guy's farther on the court than me? In fact, this, this referee did the just thing. He took us both out of the game. We both deserved the penalty. Uh, this is kind of what we do when we, uh, when we talk about um, pointing at other people. Uh, we think that, like, if we can demean someone else, we're somehow, like, exposing our own virtues. We're somehow, like, being better. But you're on the court. We're all on the court. You, you know, it, maybe somebody's a little bit farther than you. That might be true. Somebody might be worse than you. I hear this all the time. This is the line of reasoning when we say, like, it's not like I killed anybody, right? Like, I, I hear that, like, after, after basically anything anybody does wrong, people usually say that. And, like, that's a, like, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, it's like, that doesn't make what you did better that you didn't kill somebody. But we think it will. Like, somewhere in our hearts, we think it will. And that's why our second way that we do this is that we, like, posture to each other. But the problem with it is that man doesn't go home justified. God sees through it. Um, just like we do. God sees through this, this approach. Um, the Pharisee, this good person who is better than this other person, his posturing doesn't make him more exemplary. Um, instead, God's going to require something else. And what is that? What are we supposed to point to? If it's, not, if it's not ourselves and it's not other people, what are we supposed to point to for our justification? Well, let's look at verse 13. Uh, Jesus says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So we're, here we have one man who comes who is following, comes into God's house. He's following God's laws. He's a rule follower. Um, he's having done so much better uh, than, than this other tax collector. He leaves condemned. Uh, this other man who is just a notorious sinner, a horrible person, he leaves vindicated. He leaves justified. Um, 
Take it. I want you to take a second to like drink this in for a second because this is completely and utterly unexpected. Um, you know, we wouldn't. If we were the judges, we probably wouldn't pick like this, right? Like, we wouldn't say, you know, the guy who does the right things, um, you're not justified. I don't. I don't trust you. I, I don't want to have a relationship with you. But this sinner, I really want to hang out with him. I really want to commune with him. Um, this isn't how we naturally think. Um, and no other religion on the planet works like this either. Um, no, other, no other philosophy will tell you that the person who obeys and is a good person, a good tenant of this like, religion, is somehow uh, sent packing, while the other person who is the clearer sinner, who just says, like, I'm not very good at this, who just owns up to not being able to save themselves, um, that they get justified in God's sight. Um, this is radical. And how can this be? How does this work? How can God forgive this like, horrible person? Um, well, it's because of the posture of each man's heart. Notice, notice this in verse 11 and 13. Go look at it. Each man is standing, uh, Luke records, Jesus saying, far off. Why does Jesus tell the story like this? Why does he put these two men standing far off? Because um, he wants you to notice that even though they're physically standing in the same place, they are emotionally could not be farther apart. Um, their motivations could not be farther apart. One man stands far off because he's above he's over everyone, right? He thinks he has it all together. He thinks he has everything, but really he has nothing. The other man stands far off because uh, he's below. He's underneath. He's lowly. Um, and even though he thinks he has nothing, he's found everything. He's found salvation. He's found the truth that will set him free. Um, and it can justify us as well if we'll let it. Not in a way that puffs us up or makes us less human, or hurts other people, but a way that makes us come truly alive. Here we have our third answer for tonight, right? Here's our, our true answer. What do we point to for our, our justification? You can point to God's mercy. That's what, can get, that's what can define you. That's what can label you. That's what you can put your trust and hope in every day, in every situation. Um, you don't have to, like, you know, you don't have to play the Instagram game. You can, you can be enough in and of yourself, um, because of who God is and who God thinks you are. But how? How do I do that? How do I get that? How do I get that justification? How, how does God give mercy to people like me um, who, who need it? Well, it's in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God has offered us this justification we could not earn for ourselves. It's not that, it's not that God uh, just like gives you this spot, spotless reputation and identity at no cost. It's that Jesus has paid it for you. It's that what you couldn't pay, it's that what you couldn't do on your own, your resume, your works, your pointing at others, your posturing, what it couldn't do, Jesus has done. Um, his sacrifice, his life, his obedience is offered to you in the cross. And nothing you could ever do could earn that kind of a gift. Um, it's, it's grace. Um, and that's the mercy that the tax collector is asking for. That's why Jesus puts these words on this tax collector's lips, right? He wants to invite you with the tax collector to pray that prayer, to say, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. Um, leave, he's asking us to think about leaving our resumes at the door and trusting him. Uh, and when we place our faith in Jesus' obedience, uh, we, we get that. Uh, when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sinner that we are, and instead, he always delights in us. Um, and you can walk around the rest of your life knowing every second of every day that God delights in you, that he loves you. Um, what, a, what a restful thing. It's also the most challenging thing 
because uh, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to admit that you're not enough. That's the scariest thing maybe in this whole world. To like, it's why we do this every week where we, where we pray and we confess. Um, it's, it's because that's scary, but it's also good. It encourages our hearts to know that like, our performance, our resume, our goodness isn't what God is basing his love for us on, but instead it's on the finished work of Christ. Um, I'll close with this. When I was a kid, um, my family would go skiing and me and my dad uh, would uh, venture off on a different mountain where we'd do some black diamonds. Yeah, casual. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I was a little kid at the time. I was like seven or eight. And, you know, because I'm so light, I can just like zip down the mountain. I'd like barely even pick up speed because I have no mass. Um, so I think I'm just hot shot. But I like race my dad down. This is the first time I've ever gone down this mountain. First time down, I just shoot down the mountain. I'm actually so fast that I leave my dad in the dust. And I turn back around at the bottom of the hill. He's not there. And I'm like, oh, well, I must have just really beaten him. I'm, like, waiting to gloat. And then a few minutes pass, a few more minutes pass, and I realize, like, I don't think my dad's coming. Uh, maybe something happened to him. So I get on this chairlift, and I ride it to the top, and I ride back down. Problem, I still don't find my dad. I'm like, oh, no. Now I'm, now I'm lost. Like, I, my dad may have fallen off this mountain. I have no idea what's happening. But I said, like, well, don't be crazy, Nick. This is my seven-year-old brain. Don't be crazy, Nick. He's probably, what happened is when you rode up, right, he rode down. And then when you, you know, you guys have just been trading places. So if you just wait for him, like, he'll eventually come to you. Well, my dad, I didn't know this at the time, had the same idea. I'll just wait at the top. And so (laughs) we did this, and then we did this, and then we just stayed there for 30 minutes. Like, 30 minutes, an hour. I just, like, sat there at the bottom. I'm a seven-year-old kid. I'm like, oh, I'm so scared. I'm getting very cold. And so finally I say, like, well, I'll ride back up to the top. And I'm skiing around, and I'm trying to find my dad. And then suddenly I see this, uh, you know, this big red you know, cross on a door. And I'm like, oh, the ranger station. Like, I, like people who are patrolling and can like, find my dad. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't know. Like, I mean, I have to like, go tell him I'm, like, I'm lost. Hi, I'm Nick, and I'm lost. Um, you know, like, I'm like, I don't want to say it. I don't want to tell him I, like, I like, lost my dad. And, um, and also, it's, like, really scary for me to admit that, too, right? Um, and I'm going to have to, like, trust these other people to go find him. Um, but eventually, I'm getting really cold, so I just give up. And I say, okay, you know what? I'm just going to try these guys and see if they can find my dad. I walk in. They sit me down. They, like, take, I take off my skis. Uh, they give me, like, a hot chocolate. And they're like, we're going to find your dad, son. You're going to be fine. Uh, and then, like, two minutes later, it turns out my dad's already talked to the people at the bottom. And they're like, hold him, you know, like they've called. And, like, hold him there. My dad comes, picks me up. Guys, this is what grace is like. Um, It's like you are lost on a mountain. You do not know how to find your family, your dad, anything. You are toast um, in life uh, if you don't get some help. And all you have to do is knock on the door and ask. Um, It's going to be scary. It's going to be hard to do that because uh, you have to admit that you're not capable of that on your own. Um, But it's good. Um, And it's uh, what Jesus is inviting to us inviting us to here tonight. Um, uh, the rangers who took me inside, uh, God wants to do that for you. He wants to give you hot chocolate and a banquet and love you and tell you that you're justified and enough. Um, and in return, you give him nothing. You come empty-handed. Um, I encourage you guys to think about taking that invitation. Uh, let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for this.